Well, I'm supposed to turn this on. Well, I think that was an appropriate uh, song for us to end on. Uh, I don't know. Um, last time I was here, we were people asked, when are you going back to Jamaica? And at the time, we said, well, we hope by the end of the year. And that was about as much as I could give you. But if you saw our most recent update, uh, we are flying out uh, the 29th of November uh, to go back to Jamaica. And God has indeed done some great things. And which leads to partly what I'm going to share tonight, just um, a lesson from that uh, learned through this process. But yes, God, just over a span of maybe three, four weeks, God just laid all the details together uh, for us uh, to return to Jamaica. And so um, thank you, Pastor, for allowing me to switch to the evening rather than the morning as we wrap things up. But yes, we, God provided a house, and God provided a vehicle and enough uh, funds that ABWE cleared us to go back. We're not at 100% support yet, uh, but Lord willing, over the next few months, we will be, because we presented at a few churches, and it's gone well, and so Lord willing, um, that, that will be there. I can answer those questions later if you have them. But I was just uh, happy to come and share with you guys again. It's been good uh, to kind of touch base with your church a few times this, uh, these past few months as we've been here. Uh, it's good to be here. And as I've just finished tonight, um, or as I speak tonight, I want to talk about one of my favorite Bible characters, probably my favorite of all time. I think he's as important to the Old Testament as Paul is to the New Testament. His name is Ezra. And you can turn in your Bible to Ezra, uh, but I want to kind of set the stage a little bit and have you think about um, the idea of, have you ever been asked to give a recommendation on something? So for some reason, you're considered an expert in some area, and so people ask you for a recommendation on something. Anyone ever been asked recommendation on restaurant, cars, housing? Anybody here ever been asked? Who here likes to be asked for that input? Or it makes you a little nervous? As I'll tell you, like I said, God provided a car. Well, we have a pastor friend in Jamaica who has kind of gotten a reputation for knowing where to get vehicles. And so I reached out to him. He went and actually drove around, looked for a vehicle, found one, took pictures, recommended it to me. I then purchased it without actually going to Jamaica to see it. And I had a friend yesterday go to pick up the vehicle. And it wouldn't start and it was out of gas. So then I reached out to my pastor friend. I said, hey, what's wrong with the car? You know, that is it his fault that it didn't start or didn't have gas? No, but because he had recommended it, right, I go back to him and, and I'm asking questions. Hey, do you know this guy? You know what? And it all got worked out. The car started and the pastor who picked it up drove it home just fine. Uh, but that's kind of what happens, right? The, the man who gave me the recommendation, I reach out to when things don't go right, even though it's not his fault at all. And I want to talk about that idea of, reputation, putting your reputation on, and the question I want you to think about as I go into this is, when was the last time you staked your reputation on God? And just have that in the back of your mind while we get into this tonight, because I'm going to um, be a little more, I'm going to, pastor said I could more kind of teach, kind of like um, sometimes I do in the Bible college, so that's what we're in for tonight. So if you have your Bible 
in Ezra. Um, I'll open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of look through what's happening. And I'm going to walk you through kind of the whole book to make sure you capture the power of a few verses near the end. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the great things you have done, the story you have woven both in Scripture, at Berean Baptist, and in our lives as well. And we are grateful for your goodness and your grace. And as we just spend a little time in your word, uh, may you be honored, uh, may your voice be heard, and may it be a time where we can learn and grow and be challenged uh, to put our lives and our reputation on you uh, for you to do great things through us. Uh, Help us tonight uh, to be awake and be listeners and to be attentive to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, the book of Ezra, uh, let me kind of walk you through the first few chapters. It's a great story. I love the story of Ezra. But Ezra doesn't show up at the beginning. He shows up later. So, the actual story that's taking place uh, is from after the nation of Israel had been taken captive. So, Babylon came in, and Nebuchadnezzar, they destroyed Jerusalem. They took uh, people captive. They dispersed the nation. And they've been gone for a long time. At the beginning of the book of Ezra, we have a man named Cyrus who sends a group of people back to Jerusalem with money to rebuild God's temple. And it's really neat if you go online and Google the Cyrus Cylinder, there's actually archaeological record of him commanding people to go back and build temples. This is something that has been proven by archaeology. So a group of Israelites left Babylon with money from the government to go back and rebuild the temple. So they go back and they, they build the foundation of the temple. They lay it out and they have a wonderful praise and worship party. They are excited. They are overjoyed to be building the temple of God. But there's a problem. Because while Israel was gone... All the people in the nations who kind of lived in that area and kind of moved in, they were quite happy that the Israelites were gone. Do you know why they were happy? Well, because when God was on the Israelites' side, it wasn't good to be an opponent of Israel, right? But while they were gone and God wasn't taking care of his people, it was good for them. But when they watched the Israelites come back and start building God's temple again, it gets, uh, there's a little concern. Wait a minute, what's going on? Uh, why, is, why is this happening again? Why is God coming back into the picture? So, they then, they wrote a letter, uh, not to the newspaper, but back to the king of Persia. They wrote a letter and said, hey, wait a minute. These people say you gave them permission to rebuild the temple, but we're not sure that's correct. If you look up, you'll see that these people are a problem people and they should stop building the temple. So the letter went back to Babylon. The king looked up the records, and sure enough, the records show that the Israelites were indeed a problem people. So he sent a letter back, and the letter this time said, stop building the temple. Now the opponents of Israel were excited to get this letter. And you you can imagine, they opened it up, they read it, they jumped right in their cars and drove to Jerusalem and held it up and say, hey, look, the king says you have to, I was about to say wear masks and stop meeting, um, stop building the temple. <clears throat> and, and you know what they did? 
they got scared, and they stopped building the temple. And it records for us in Ezra that it stopped for quite a long time. They kind of went about their business. They stayed in, in Jerusalem, and they went about, they built their own houses, and they went back and got busy in business, and their lives moved on. But the temple just stayed there, a foundation, nothing happened. Anyone ever driven by a construction project that kind of stops for a long time? Happens a lot in Jamaica. Um, the Bible college where I teach has had a portion under construction the past seven years we've been there. And, but fortunately, they've been doing some work on it the past month. It's exciting. But, you know, it was just there in the middle of town, the temple, foundation laid, nothing happening. Sorry, my throat's a little off today. So that's, that's where it stayed for a while. When you get to Ezra chapter 5, and if you want some homework, I encourage you to, to go look at this, um, this part of the story later. We're not going to look at it in detail. But it said, Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah, and Jeshua, I'm, I'm skipping some words, they rose up and began to build. And that's pretty exciting. You know, who here is familiar with the books of Haggai and Zechariah? Anybody? All right. It tells us that they prophesied and the people started to build. So if you ever want to read a book that really was accomplished what it was for, those two books are something that God used to get the nation building again. It's really cool. I encourage you to read them, but we're not doing that part of the story tonight. But they start to rebuild the temple. And... They are now building in opposition to the king's authority because the last letter said, stop building. Now, it does turn out that this time a letter's written again, and this time the king finds the original letter and said, yes, Cyrus told them to build it. They're allowed to build it. And because you gave them trouble, you need to give them money to help them finish it because the Cyrus said it. So the temple's finished, end of chapter um, Ezra 5 and 6. The, the temple's finished, it's wonderful, things have restored. So those, those first six chapters is this wonderful story uh, would make an amazing movie of restoration and hope and then failure and discouragement. And then these prophets come along and God's word sparks the people to do things in the face of great challenges and they rise up and they finish and they watch God do a great thing. And that's Ezra up through chapter 6. But now, our man Ezra comes on the scene. And he's the one I want to look at tonight. So he is now going back <clears throat> to this place where God has started to do great things. And we are going to look at Ezra 7 and 8 tonight. And I just want to share with you this story. Once again, we're going to move quickly through some of this. But it's very exciting, at least for me. So, here we go. So, once again, we have a king supporting the work of God. It says, Artaxerxes, in the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra, and it tells us who he is. And who he is, is a descendant of Aaron, brother Moses, the high priest. So, he is in the line of the priesthood, the great priesthood of Aaron and the descendants of that, Phineas, another great man in the Bible. But it tells us in verse 6 that he is a skilled scribe 
and the law of Moses. Now, this scribe word is very familiar to us, readers of the Bible now. Uh, where are we most familiar with the term or the role of scribe in your common Bible experience? Where is it used? In the Gospels, and it's usually they're grouped with whom? Right, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Now, their origin story for the scribes and the Pharisees kind of comes out of these chapters, but we'll get to that in a minute. But this scribe role is not something we've seen previously in the Old Testament. Because what happened is Moses wrote the law, and then Joshua continued to write, and those records had to be preserved. Well, they were copied over many years and done around the temple area. The priests would oversee the work. However, when the temple is destroyed and the whole nation is moved to Babylon, the worship and the study of the word of God is very much disrupted. And the people who kind of rise to the forefront are then the scribes. Because while the temple worship isn't going on, the sacrifices aren't being done at the temple, the priests kind of don't have as much of a role, but these group of scribes continued to protect the word of God. And what happened is as they would copy it over these years, over and over and over again, it's the scribes who became the ones who were most knowledgeable about the word of God because they were the ones copying it every day for their whole life. That was what they dedicated themselves to. And so what happens is, in this time of spiritual darkness, the men who spent time every day in the Word of God are the ones who are most passionate about the things of God. Kind of notice the theme there? It wasn't the, the, the people who had the title of priest who ended up carrying that forward. Now, there are some good priests, and they'll show up here in a while, but it's the men who were copying and preserving their daily time in the Word, writing God's Word over and over again, even though they were in a foreign country, out of their land, not with the temple, not with the normal worship, all of that. But what they had was the Word of God, and every day they would make copies. And what it developed in Ezra is a passion and a love and an overwhelming dependence on the Word of God. It got him excited about it. And that was what God used as he heard about the temple being rebuilt, he realized the people back in Jerusalem, they had a physical building now, but they didn't have knowledge of the word of God. And he said, wait a minute, I have the word of God, a copy of it, I have the knowledge of it, God has given me this ability, and so we find out there in Ezra 7, Verse 10, a famous verse, you might know it, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. His passion now became to teach the word of God to a people who had the form of worship available but not the knowledge and the word of God to make it come alive. So he wanted to go and teach. But what we find out is really cool is now... The, the secular king, King Artaxerxes, is now instructing Ezra to return to teach. 
So before it was to build a building. Cyrus said, go back and rebuild the temple. Now Artaxerxes is saying, Ezra, go back and teach the law. Isn't that fascinating? That the government of Persia was funding Ezra as a missionary to go teach the word of God in Israel. You know, I shared, you know, we still need a little bit of support. Uh, can you imagine that um, Joe Biden writes a letter and gives me all the money I need to go to Jamaica and teach? That's kind of a parallel to this story. And you're like, that's pretty ridiculous. Well, it's fascinating that this secular king was doing that very thing. He was sending that. Now, I don't want you to make too much of that because both Cyrus and Artaxerxes Part of what made these kings prideful and confident is if they enriched the cultures of the nations that they ruled over, it, it reflected good on them. They, they, they looked good to people. So not all of it is out of wonderful love for God from their own heart, but God uses that to accomplish his work. That's the, the very clear aspect of this story is that God is doing that. So we have this letter and I'm not going to read the whole letter to you, but he is, writes the king that they are to take the law of God, which is in your hand, take silver and gold, and you're going to get more silver and gold, and you're going to buy bulls, rams, and lambs. You're going to offer them. He's, he's telling Ezra in this letter all the things he needs to do. And verse 21 he says, everybody who's on the other side of the river, that's over in the land of Israel, need to give you money as well. And verse 24, the king says, nobody can tax you. Uh, they were tax exempt. You know, that's where we get it from on all these things. And all of this was to produce and to bring about the teaching of the word of God. So the king had given all of this stuff. And verse 27 of Ezra 7, it says, Blessed be the Lord who put such a thing in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, extended mercy. So I was encouraged as the hand of my God was upon me. So I gathered the men of Israel to go up with me. So they are about to begin their journey. So he gathers people. He has a letter from the king. He has tax-exempt status. He has silver and gold. He has promise of more money. He is already... But now he stops because he still wants to do a few different things here. And that's what chapter 8 is going to get into. So you guys with me so far? So we have a nation that has gone through a spiritual down and then back up. And now Ezra, a scribe, lived his life passionately excited about God's work, ready to go back. And the government has given everything he needs, all the money, to do that. He is loaded up with the king's money, but he wants to make sure he's ready with other people. And so in chapters 8, 1 through 14, he's going to list all of the people who are going with him. He makes a roll call list of all the people. But there's a problem in verse 15. They gather by this river for three days, and he looks Unfortunately, he doesn't find any sons of Levi. So he, while he is a priest and a scribe or descendant of priests, he can't find anybody who's certified 
directly of the type of priests he needs in his group. Because he knows the law of the Lord very well. He knows that there were certain designations. Um, and we're, I'm not going to get into details. If you read Leviticus and Numbers, there was very specific roles and responsibilities. And he doesn't have everybody he needs. So before he leaves, he sends a letter and finds some others. And we find out that uh, a group comes, descendant of Levi. So he is all ready to go. But we now come to the, my favorite part of the story, verse 21. He has king's money. He has a letter from the king. He has people to go with him. He has Levites. He has the word of God. He has the knowledge. He has the preparation. He has the planning. He has everything he needs ready to go back. But now a thought creeps into his head. A little bit of doubt. Anybody ever had doubt when you're all prepared and you're ready? And it can be little, right? Sometimes anyone ever started a big journey, you drive off about a mile down the road, and you're like, did I forget something? Anyone ever had that? That's, that's that little creep of doubt. Well, here, it's a little bit different. Ezra has a little doubt creep in. And the doubt is he realizes, wait a minute, we're about to go on a five-month journey with a whole lot of people. Now, if you have a whole lot of people, do you move faster or slower with more people? Move slower. And part of what's weighing them down is what? A lot of silver and gold. Now, if you have a large, slow-moving group with a lot of silver and gold, what would you expect you are in danger of at this point? Theft. Robbers. You know, the, the bandits who pull over the Wells Fargo wagon. Now, the problem is, and we're going to see here in a second, Ezra had said something to the king. And let's look at what he says. It's very powerful. Verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Hava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all of our possessions. Now, why did he do this? Verse 22, for I was ashamed to request of the king an effort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all who forsake him. So we fasted and treated our God for this, and he answered our prayers. Did you catch what happened? Ezra had told the king, the king had said, I'm giving you a ton of money. Do you want me to send you some policemen and army with you to protect my money? So the king's making a big investment in Ezra. And he offers to Ezra a Brink security truck to go with him. And Ezra had looked the king in the face and said, the hand of God is for those who seek good. You know what Ezra had just done? He had put his entire reputation and honor before the king on whom? On God. All this wonderful thing that God did, he realized, I put it all in the line on God. I told the king, I don't need your soldiers. I don't need your horsemen. I have God on my side. 
Now he's about to leave, and he realizes this is a big deal. I can't take this lightly because I put God's name on the line. But what he does is a wonderful testament and example is he turns to God and gets the whole group to humble themselves and fast and pray and to seek God's favor. It may seem that God was already in favor, right? What are the evidences that maybe God was already working? Well, he allowed the temple to be rebuilt. He overcome that opposition. He moved the king to provide overwhelmingly for Ezra. Ezra numbered everybody, found he was still missing some people, and God provided those people. It seems like everything is lining up exactly right. But Ezra still stops and pauses and fasts and prays and says, God, I put this entire project on you, and I can't now go to the king and say, you know what, king? I was thinking, I know I told you my God's sufficient, but now I'm not so sure. Could I have some of your soldiers too? See, for Ezra, that wasn't putting his own name necessarily, destroying his own reputation, although it was. He would have to be now before the king denying the very power of the God that he is going back to tell and teach about. He can't do that. He is now fully dependent upon God. And their whole endeavor, all of this work, all of this preparation, all of this money for five months is now going to rest completely on the hand of God. And you notice he says even little ones. You see? So he's not just worried about the money. He's worried about the families, the kids, the children, the women, all of the people who are with him. All of that is in danger. And it has to be up for God. We know since he tossed that phrase there, he answered our prayers. You know the ending of the story here. And when we find out that he divided up the money there in verses 24 uh, through 30. And they bring them and we find out the end of the story here. Uh, we departed from the river on the 12th day of the first month. And the hand of our God was upon us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy, from ambush. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of God by the hand of Merimoth. And with him was Eleazar, and we go down through. With the number of weight, all the weight was written out at the time. And all the people who had been carried away offered burnt offerings, 12 bulls, 96 rams, 77 lambs, all this, and they delivered the king's orders to the safe traps and governors. They gave support to the people and the house of God. And the story, and that part of the story now ends. They, they measured the money. They didn't lose any money. Everybody is safely there, and it's a wonderful story. But I want us to really focus uh, our time here as we think about that, that little moment of Ezra and that idea of doubt and what he did with it. Because, you know, for Charity and I, you know, we kind of, we did a similar thing as Ezra. And when we would talk to people, people would ask often, when are you going back to Jamaica? We would get that almost every church we went to. 
And in reality, we really had no answer because we knew God had to work. And so we, we were left with what we like told your church is, well, we hope by the end of the year. We're trusting God that he will do that. In many ways, we were, in a small way, trying to, we were doing the same thing that Ezra was doing. We were putting our hope and our expectation on what God could do. Now, not to the significant decree of Ezra, but, but he, had, he had committed that. And we're going to come back, and I want you to think about that. But when it came time for the actual event, even though there was a lot of evidence, there's that doubt and that fear. And the question is, is Ezra wrong for having this doubt and fear? And I want you to think about that. Because he has evidence of God's hand at work, right? He has the, the, the things happening, the, the blessings lining up, the wonderful plan laid out. He has the desire to go do this that's from God. He has provision that's been provided by the king. And he understands it's done on, by the hand of God. We'll look at that in a second. So he has all this evidence, but now he seems to have some concern. And I think that's probably a good way to phrase it, is that as, as humans, God has called us to live by faith. And he, the book of Hebrews and other places put that idea that faith is what? Is acting and living when you don't have evidence, right? When there is not, faith is, you know, believing without seeing. For many of us, we struggle with faith because we don't often like to, to do something without a concrete plan and way to get there, right? We don't like to take off. So, like my friend yesterday went to pick up the vehicle, you know, it was empty. And so the, the car dealership went to the gas station and put just a little bit of, of fuel in it for him. Well, you know what he wanted before he drove off? He wanted me to try to transfer some money to him so he could go to the, the gas station and get some fuel in the vehicle. That makes sense, you know. It, because to just go off and say, well, I hope, I hope this little bit of fuel is going to last me the whole way doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And that, that would be silly, but the idea is the same, is we don't like to step out without a clear knowing we're going to be successful a lot of times, right? And what, it, It's hard to do that in, in any aspect of life. Um, if my wife sends me to the store, she, she, she yells down uh, the stairs, Caleb, I need to go to the store and get some things. I say, Awesome. And I charge out the door on faith. I turn the car on. I head to the store. I have no clue what she wants, but I'm going to go on faith that I'm going to get the right thing. No, we're not going to do that, right? What do you want? Uh, cheese. Oh, what type of cheese? Shredded cheese? Block cheese? Little cheese sticks? You know, we're, we're going to ask all these questions. We're going to line it all up. But in the Christian life, God desires, and it says that we cannot please him without faith. And the question that often is a wrestle and a challenge for me, is when was the last time I had to put my faith in God? When was the last time I was utterly dependent on faith in God? Or do we structure, or do I structure and control my life so that 
I know what's going to happen, or I know things will be taken care of. Or we have contingency plans, right? All right, if this doesn't work out, I have this, this, this option plan with me. And, you know, we have, we have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old. You know what's always in the car with us with a one-and-a-half-year-old? Extra diapers and extra clothes, right? Because we know he's going to do something. What was it, two, two Sundays ago? Last, last Sunday. We headed off to, to go to a church in, in northern Ohio, and Ruth is reading in the car, and Charity turns around and looks, and Jude has his socks off and has been rubbing oatmeal all over his body. All right. We're pulling over, get out all the wipes, clean them off, get them dressed, right? And, and you know, we got delayed. It just happens, and that's okay. But really in our life, have we ever put God on the line to fully depend and trust upon him like Ezra did? Ezra was given massive government funds and all of that he put on the line on God. said, God will take care of me. Wow. To have that kind of faith and to step out. But what it didn't do in Ezra is he had concerns. That was that was scary to him, and that is normal. And I, and I think we, we can see that because Moses constantly was going back to God and, and, and asking for help. Even Jesus, before he was crucified, you see the anguish and the emotion of going through the process. Did Jesus have absolute faith that God's plan was in process and God was going to take care of it? He did, but there was still the, the human concern and emotion. And what I like about Ezra is that fear and nervousness and concern are valid. The question is, what do we do with that? And what Ezra did here in this passage is he gathered everybody to fast, to humble themselves, and to pray, and, and to go back to God in, in utter dependence. And, and that idea of fasting there. They have been given all these resources, and they choose to fast. It's fascinating. Who here, is anybody consistent faster? You don't have to raise your hands. Growing up, I grew up in a Christian, a good uh, Christian Baptist church, and was at church all the time. My parents served in ministry. And you know what I got taught about in, like, Sunday school and youth group, spiritual disciplines. I learned about memorizing scripture. Anyone do that? I went to Awana, a lot of that. Uh, I learned about doing my quiet time. My dad loved Word of Life. I don't know if you Word of Life, but they have these books that you study the Word, and um, we did that. In youth group, we would, we would you know, go out, we would do evangelizing, I did missions trips. But I don't remember, and this could be my memory, Anyone ever teaching me about fasting? Now, I don't know if you, you had the benefit, but I got older and I, and I started reading the Bible, and over and over again, I see people fasting. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus fasted, and Ezra fasted, and Moses fasted, all these people fasted. Why has no one ever taught me about fasting before? It's amazing. But here we see Ezra fasting. And so I want to stop for just a second and just challenge you to think about fasting. There's not a whole lesson on fasting. But 
Do you guys understand the power of fasting? Anyone here done it and knows the power of fasting? Since I don't see any hands, I'll go ahead and let's see some. Uh, and I challenge you to think about it. See, the thing about fasting in the scriptures is that it removes an absolute basic necessity. Who here has ever been hungry before? I, I think we all, we all do that, right? If you get really hungry, how easy is it to focus on other things? It gets hard, right? And we're sat in a long meeting or school and you've been hungry. It gets distracting, right? Because the need, our bodies start to push us to focus on the need. I want food. I need food. And, and our focus and our minds, our bodies, how they were developed, forces us to focus more and more on craving and desiring getting the food to satisfy the growing hunger that we have. And that sort of growing hunger, that's natural. God gave us the, the need for food. And so it's not a bad thing. The desire for food is not bad. I probably shouldn't talk about this this late. You, know, you probably all need to go out and get some food. That's a, it's a normal good thing. There's nothing wrong with wanting food. And that's why it's a good example is because fasting then takes that need and sets it aside and says, I'm going to focus and look to God. I'm going to focus and look to God. And it requires you to focus and overcome a natural, normal desire in order to show utter dependence upon God. That's why Moses in Deuteronomy 8, another good chapter, you can turn there if you want and look at it or just write a note to look at it later. But Moses is really concerned about the nation of Israel when they're going to go into the promised land because he's worried for 40 years, you know what they ate every single day? Manna, which means what is it? And how did they get it? Did they plant it, harvest it, do all their effort? Nope, they just went outside and there it was. How many of you, you go home tonight, go to bed, you wake up, there will be fruit in your kitchen? Anybody? Right? It's normal. The Israelites, when they woke up in the morning, did they have food? No. They had to go outside and get it. Now, if you have to go outside every day and get the food you're going to need for that day, who are you going to be focused and thinking about every single day? You're going to go out and pick it up and wow, God, it's so good. I have food for today. I didn't have this when I went to bed, but here I have it for today. Every day, who are you reminded of? God. But Moses in Deuteronomy 8, you look, it's a really good chapter. It says, I'm concerned because you are about to go into a land with milk and honey and bread and wonderful figs and fruits and grapes. You're going to have food Beyond what you can imagine, you will eat and be full. I know you guys are excited about Thursday, right? So you're going to eat and be full. And Moses says, when you have eaten and are full, I'm worried that you're going to do what? Forget about God. Because when you're utterly dependent upon God, you crave him, you need him, you depend upon him. But when you have everything you need, do you need God? Not so much. That's why it's in Deuteronomy 8 that there's a verse that you know very well. 
It says, God hung, made you hunger to teach you that, anybody know the rest of the verse? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's in that chapter. See, comfort and knowing what's going to happen and having a plan and having a lot in your savings account <coughs> is not bad. But Moses is saying when you have those things, you don't have need for faith. And fasting is an action that forces you to drive yourself back to your need and dependence upon God. Because when you go without food, your body will remind you, I need something, I need something, I need something. And by denying that and saying, I'm going to focus on God, I'm going to focus on God, I'm going to focus on God, it helps us to grasp and remember that. So what Ezra was doing, he had everything he needed. He had gold, silver, in abundance. He had letters from the king. He had authority. He had training, experience. He had everything he needed. You know what was in danger of doing? Throwing everybody in the car and just trotting off to Israel, right? But he said, wait a minute. All the things that I have could be lost in one day. You know what I need? I need God. And that pausing, that moment of concern, drove him not to fear, to pause, to wait, to try to figure out a new plan, to strategize. It drew him back to God. And what's powerful about that is it encourages us to do two things with our lives. The first is to seek in our lives where we need to act and live with faith. So what I want you to think about is where in your life, over this next week, is there something that you can do or need to do that puts you fully dependent upon God? And secondly, what I want you to think about is or how can I remind myself of depending upon God where I don't think I need to? That is where we most effectively can start to change that habit in our lives. So, for example, for Charity and I, we need to do this over this next week ourselves. God has done amazing things. We didn't have a house. We had an idea of where we wanted to live and things. But we didn't have it. Once we got clearance from ABW, we looked online, boom, there was a house we hadn't seen before on the website. A week later, it, it was, you know, secured that we could rent it. Wow. We, God provided a vehicle. God provided the clearance to go back. Wow, everything we have, we need. You know what we still need, though? The prayer and the focus and dependence upon God. There's so much that we are going out and we need to remind ourselves that all of it could be lost. We are utterly dependent upon God. But that happens in our own lives too. Some of you are going to go home tonight and before you get in bed, you're going to lay out right, what, what does this week have for me. Anybody going to do that tonight? 
you know, sit down and say, all right, what, what, needs, what needs to happen this week? Some of you might be traveling, some of you might have family, so tomorrow you need to uh, clean the toilets, go to the grocery store, right? We're going to have a plan for the week. What I want to encourage you is as you plan for the week tonight, tomorrow morning, maybe you did it yesterday, but as you think about the week, look at your week and say, where can I put in a time to make sure I'm reminding myself my dependence upon God? Where can I add a moment of prayer? Or maybe I encourage you to think about adding a, a time of fasting. If you haven't done fasting before, there's a lot of resources out there and do that, but you can start by, if you normally eat breakfast every day, one morning skipping breakfast and spending some time in prayer. It's not a lot, but it helps you build uh, that, that spiritual discipline. We don't have kids memorize Leviticus 7 when they first start memorizing verses, right? We teach them John 3.16 and John 1.1 1, 1 and some really good verses. So as you think about it, if you've never fasted before, don't try to go for 40 days and 40 nights like Jesus did um, off day one. Just start and work on it. But maybe if you think you know what this week holds and you're ready to go and you have a plan, you have a to-do list. I love to-do lists. They're wonderful. If you're all ready, say, what can I do to take some time to focus on dependence upon God? That's what I want us to learn from this story of Ezra and to see in that hand. And if you, have, if you like to underline, go back to Ezra chapter 7 and very quickly just get your, your pen or pencil out and watch how often Ezra refers to the hand of God. And you look down through, and you see it first in Ezra 7, verse 6, it says, The king granted him all his rest according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. You look down in verse 9, he began his journey. He came to Jerusalem according to what the good hand upon him. And then we have the letter from the king, which doesn't reference the, the hand of God. But you see at the end of Ezra 7, as Ezra wraps up the letter, in verse 28, it says, I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And then he's going to, to list all the people in Ezra 8, verse 15, when he talks about looking for People, we see in verse 18, then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. So all these times, over and over again, Ezra is saying, the hand of our God was upon us. The hand of our God was upon us. So that is why in Ezra 8.21 and 22, he is ashamed to ask the king for help because he had told the king, the hand of the God is upon. So he has been saying the hand of God is upon us. The hand of God is upon us. The hand of God is upon us. And he had told the king, the hand of God is upon us. Now he can't turn back. I would encourage you as well, as you think back now, this is a time of looking back, over the past month, and this is really good for Thanksgiving week, can you write a story of your own life and point out times where you can say the hand of God was upon me? If you can't think of something, take some time tonight 
and think back and seek. Because the fact of the matter is, Ezra recognized the hand of God because he was acting in such a way that he needed the hand of God. Does that make sense? It, it was, he was acting in such a way that he needed help. My son, who's one and a half, well, over one and a half, he lives with a lot of faith. He'll get up on the bed, he'll jump up and down, and just start running. He lives as if he needs the good hand of his father to catch him a lot. Now, it's not conscious faith, but he lives with a, a lack of fear for the dangers of life. Because So he needs the good hand of me and charity upon him. Now, that's humorous and dangerous for him, but the idea is the same. Are we charging into situations in life in such a way that we need the hand of God upon us? So when you look back, you say, wow, the hand of God was upon us. It is, it is exciting. And so as you gather for Thanksgiving this week, it is good to look back on this past year and say, where did I see the hand of God? Oh, you know what? I remember. God did this. God did this. And what that does is it builds the habit of seeing God as the source and the giver of our life, both for its persistence and its success. And then, when we face those moments of doubt and concern, we can pursue forward knowing God has done this, and he has done this, and while I'm scared and I'm afraid, if I put this before him, he will do it as well. So all of that is wrapped up in this wonderful story of, of Ezra and the, the passion he had. And so as we look at this man, it's a challenge for me because here was Ezra whose whole life was spent studying the word. And he's a spiritual guy. He's ready to teach. He's ready to serve. He is God-focused all the time. And yet, he still had a moment where he had doubts and questions and concerns. And what did he do? So for you and I, as we enter life, we need to first seek to live by faith. But secondly, if we do have moments of questions, concerns, doubts, we now have a pattern for what even a very spiritual, godly man did. He went back and said, we need God to make this happen. And I want to ask on our family's behalf, as, as we get ready to, to head back to Jamaica and start another, who knows how many years we could be there serving God. When we left in 2016, we're like, you know, we'll do four years, then we'll do furlough, and then the world shut down and ended, and we are just there longer. So who knows what's going to happen, right? Uh, the last few years, if they taught us anything about politics and socioeconomic uh, policies and uh, economic fallouts, all those things are irrelevant. What they have reminded us is we do not know what tomorrow brings. Our God does. If we live in our own confidence and our own well-being, and we are not going out in faithful confidence before God that he will take care of us, we are living on our own strength. We are living on the king's money. And we are seeking to control our lives. 
And the only thing that can happen if we try to control our own lives is we will lose control. Ezra, a man who had wonderful blessings, still went back and said, God, we desperately, utterly need you. We need to be like that each and every day. We need to be so invested and so driven to the word of God like Ezra, that it becomes a passion and a joy. And then when we face the moments of life that give us pause, we have a hope and we have a process to go to God. So I'm going to wrap up. It looks like I'm wrapping up a little early. Hopefully you will forgive me. But what I want you to do is as I close in prayer, I want you to think about is there something in the coming weeks or months God's kind of had on your mind something you need to do. Maybe there's a conversation he wants you to have. Uh, Maybe there is a ministry or an endeavor he's been kind of sparking on the back of your mind. Maybe there's a a family member, a friend, a co-worker you've kind of wanted to talk with. Uh, Maybe there's something you see that God's been stirring in your heart, a passion or desire to use for him, but you've been maybe hesitant or thinking about it, what can you do over the next few weeks to to put yourself in a process where you are acting in faith? You don't know the outcome of what might happen, but you're going to say, God, I'm going to do it and trust you. And then secondly, I want you to think about what has God done in the past and allow that to encourage you and give you strength and to build your faith to, to go and to serve and to live. And let us encourage one another. Let us build each other up and let us challenge one another with stories like Ezra's, but from our own lives. Say, this is what God did. You know, for Charity and I, a month and a half ago, we had no clue when we were going back to Jamaica. The good hand of our God has been upon us. He's done amazing things. And... I can't just tell you the whole story, but it's just amazing to watch what God's done the past year. It's awesome. And it's so exciting. What I know that means is I'm going to hit some rough stretches over the next two years. And these are the moments to say, you know what? God's done it before. And he's always ready and willing to serve and to care for those who humble him and seek after him. Let's let Ezra's story challenge and remind us the same way. How can you live by faith this week? When you have doubts, what will you do with that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Ezra. Help us to see in his passion, his desire, and even his fear, an example and a demonstration of how good you are, but how much you want us to seek after you, to depend, depend upon you. Thank you for what you've done for this church over the past year. Thank you for what you've done for Charity and I. May those stories of your care and your love and your provision be a reminder that we can live with bold, Ezra-like faith to put our whole lives on the line for you. Father, give us strength as believers, as individuals, to go from your body, this church, 
to reach, to seek the world, and to display what real faith is so we can please you, so we can serve you, and so the story you write in our lives is overwhelmingly done by your power and your provision so that we may point to you and say, God did this. Isn't he amazing? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.